I'm excited to announce that I'll be the MC of Design XL, a new design conference taking place November 9th in beautiful Pensacola, Florida. Design XL is the Florida Panhandle's first design conference. Join me in this beach town as they feature both local and national talent to excel your skills, grow your network, and further your design education. Tickets are on sale now at designxl.org. And early bird pricing will get you all access for a limited low price of $129 for professionals and $75 for students. In addition to the day of conference, there will be a pre-party mixer on the night of November 8th. Visit designxl.org for all the details on speakers, workshops, and more. Welcome to Feasting on Design. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. Today, I'm talking with Connor Brady, Chief Creative Officer for Critical Mass. We chat about working in the record industry and developing a reputation for being able to deal with difficult clients. How that skill set serves him now as a CCO. The growth of digital and the future of interaction design, plus a whole lot more. If you like the podcast and want to help support us, head over to patreon.com slash feasting on design. Every dollar helps us to cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. When you become a Feasting on Design patron, you'll get access to exciting Feasting on Design news before anyone else, plus stickers and t-shirts. So please help support the podcast by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash feasting on design. Connor, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm a fan. I've been listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It's it's always nice to hear that uh, people are listening. It's uh, you know, it's it's not an immediate feedback sort of thing. So you you always you put it out there, and you always wonder who's actually listening. But it's the internet, right? We're supposed to uh, <laughs> everything's supposed to be immediate, right? Yeah, <laughs> I know what you exactly. mean. The podcast. It's it's. I've often wondered, like as like creators of podcasts, it must be pretty hard sometimes to track, like you know, the feedback and response that you're getting. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, it's it's one of those that, I mean, I don't know about you, but even as someone who puts out podcasts, and you you know, you said you listen to a lot of podcasts, I very rarely go on and like rate them and you know leave reviews on them. It's just, it's not one of those things that I think about, and I and I put one out. Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, I, I love podcasts, but I I think I've maybe done one review total out of everything I've listened to. You know, it's it's just one of those things you listen and you move on. Yeah, yeah. I think, it, you know, it, if they found a way like Apple does with the App Store after you've, you know, used it for a few minutes and it gives you, do you want to rate this? If they I found a way it. to do that, you'd yeah, probably totally. get more feedback. But, yeah. you know, so. So, uh, so let, let's dive in and just kind of tell me how you got your start in design. Where where'd you come up from? Oh my God. Um, long, long time ago. Um, <laughs> so I'm from, I'm from Belfast in Northern Ireland and, uh, sure. you know, back in the seventies, eighties, it was kind of a bit of a cultural wasteland. I mean, despite all of the, the culture that's inherent in the country through like great writing and great acting and plays and that sort of culture, when it mm -hmm. came to stuff that we liked, like design and music and things like that, it was hard. And, um, you know, I, I chased music for a really long time and really got introduced to graphic design without really understanding what it was through music and record covers. I mean, oh, okay. that, that's where it started for me, sort of buying albums and falling in love with things that Von Oliver was doing in 4AD and uh, Peter Saville was doing, you know, and, and designers like that, whose names at the time I didn't even know. I just liked their work. Um, so those sort of, 12 inch squares of just beautiful art uh, with music inside were the, were the things that um, I fell in love with and then started to wonder if I could do that. Um, uh -huh. how, how would I do that? How do I? So that, that sort of led me to art college in, in London. Uh, I left okay. Belfast at 18, went to college in London and you know, coming out of college, right from my degree show, um, I started working in publishing, doing book jackets uh, for vintage paperbacks and I started working in the music industry, working at Polygram and uh, Decca Records doing what was then album covers. Yeah, <laughs> if, we, if we remember those. Uh, yes, I do. Mostly still in the CD format. Um, so I did that for, for years um, and kind of exhausted 
that industry and got a reputation for being a guy who could deal with difficult artists, which was great at the start, <laughs> but, but terrible at the end because all you got was the difficult artists. Um, but it, it sort of got to an interesting point. Sure. I remember sitting in a meeting um, at Universal Music and uh, the CEO at the time was there to discuss kind of like the next year strategy of what we were going to do and the growth of the company and Universal and Polygram. And iTunes had just got launched. And oh, okay. he made this comment in the meeting, this thing's never going to stick. And at the time, <laughs> I just remember thinking, really? Because it seems really cool. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, there was nothing on iTunes back then. There was like maybe, what well, I think the launch with like 20 artists or something. It was, it was really... Uh, yeah, it wasn't much, but I mean... But you sensed it, right? You felt it. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, even at that point, you know, there was... You know, things like Napster and all that stuff were already out before iTunes launched. So you saw this aspect of digital stuff coming. Why does it not make sense for a way to monetize well, it? People you, know, were, you, 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 you made me think of another conversation that happened at exactly the same time because, of course, we were working on the legal side of the music industry sure, where people sure. were supposed sure, to be spending sure. money on music. But meanwhile, sitting at our desks, we were all on Napster downloading stuff for free. Yeah. Um, so yeah. like we were all feeling this sort of rise of, of like the digital format and the, the difference it was going to make. And it was just that sort of um, that generation that came from 60s, 70s, 80s music, music industry where the cash cow of the release, you know, a CD where, yeah. what is it? It was like, you yeah. know, it was selling maybe for 16 or 18 bucks and costing two bucks to produce thereabouts. Yeah. Um, yeah. So massive profit model that they didn't, just did not want to give up and they just couldn't accept the fact that the quality of digital was just as good. Even back then on Napster, it was just as good. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah. in a lot so of ways, the record really industry... Time. Record industry. Yeah. yeah, but so in a lot that? of ways, the record industry still hasn't accepted that fact. They're still no. trying to fight it. Still fighting it's it. Like, yeah. Like, no, you, it used to be artists went out to, and tour to promote album sales. Now it's artists are going out and tour to make money to, make money. to be able to make another <laughs> yeah. album. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've got a lot of friends in the in the industry, like musicians, and you know, releases have, have almost become like a luxury. Not a luxury, but like they do it because they love it. They, they don't do it because they're going to make money off a release. They want to go make money, right. they go tour, right. and they yeah. sell merch and they sell yeah. tickets, and and that's how they fund themselves and and make a living being a musician. I mean, mm -hmm. unless you're you know the higher echelon of music, where you know you can be Radiohead just dump. 100,000 gigabytes for free on the internet. <laughs> it's, you know, when it, whenever you're at that level, good for them, you know, why yeah, not? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the artists who came up right on the cusp of things, most of them still are doing okay off album sales and things like that. But, you know, very few of the newer artists who have come along since the advent of digital are you've got to be not like in the 0.01% of artists to make, make money off album sales now. So you've got to be the Beyonce's and the Taylor Swift's and that level. Yeah. And you know, what I'm loving about it is as you go to watch these bands coming up, they obviously play live a lot because mm -hmm. they're like so tight, so well rehearsed. They sound really yeah. good because that's how they're yeah. making their living. And yeah, they're going into the studio now and again and they're doing releases through Spotify, wherever they're doing them, or you know, um, SoundCloud. But it's fascinating in that industry. Like even though I stepped away from it, I, I stay really close to it because now I work exclusively in digital and sure, sure. watching just how it's like changed businesses and then made businesses. Um, I'm just watching the music industry just every week fight it. <laughs> it kind of kills me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. because I mean, the other industry that I came from publishing, I mean, everybody was like, wow, this, you know, e-readers are going to kill books. Well, actually the opposite has happened. I think it was last year in the UK, the Guardian put out at the end of the year that uh, physical book sales outstripped e-readers for the first time in 10 years. Yeah. Um, so people are still buying ink on paper, and there's a reason for that. It's, there's an emotional connection there that you don't get with an e-reader. People love them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I have a Kindle, and I love it for when yeah. I'm traveling. Yes, yes. But Same. if it's if it's, I'm just going to be sitting around home reading like a fiction novel sort of thing yeah. versus 
you know, versus like a business book or something like that. A business book, I will read all day on Kindle. And totally, have a problem totally, with it. yeah. But like a fiction book or something, I still want that tangible thing. I want that smell of the book, the feel of the page. You know, I, I want that well-worn spine and everything. And you know what? Like, if we go to parties in the future, like, how are we going to tell what people are like by looking at their bookshelves if everything's on a Kindle? Like, how is that going to happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I don't know what to buy, you know. It was kind of like, and I still suffer from this and I'm dating myself, but when like Netflix first came out, you know, there was that experience of going to, you know, Blockbuster and things like that. Oh, yeah. You could see what was on the shelf and you could see that artwork that was on there that was visually appealing that drew you in. And it took a long time for Netflix to get to the point where they were putting out actual kind of like covers for their shows online yeah that you could get that visual experience and you know that draws people in to watch something that they've you know never seen or you know something like that totally i mean i i keep wanting spotify to to do something i mean i back to where we started i mean you know you'd get that sort of album from like 4AD that, you know, Von Oliver probably spent like four months designing with like photographs from Simon Lotta last year and, you know, sure. for the Pixies or something. And the stuff was like gorgeous. There was like a thousand metaphors in these things. And you'd sit there like staring at this thing with the music on and you'd find stuff. And it was just, you know, there was a story in there and it, it unfolded with the music as you were listening to it. And that was part of the whole experience. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I go and find a new artist on Spotify and I've got like a, you know, 400 pixel by 200 pixel image, a paragraph yeah. of text that's some stripped out of some press release. <laughs> yeah. And then that's it. I mean, there's nothing yeah. else there. And, and I have to go to YouTube to go find a video if I'm playing live somewhere or I'm, and I'm hunting around the internet to try and find out about the artist. I just want yep. them yep. to like build something that's like richer that, especially for new artists on the way in, you know, there's something there that's missing. I think it's, it would be so good. Yeah, I know. I mean, like iTunes has played around with that a little bit where they have some artists that have, for lack of a better term, they've got a digital version of the liner notes and all. And and that's a fun experience, but you've got to want to buy that entire album. Yeah. So, yeah. So if Spotify would integrate something like that, that would, I, I too would kill for that. That would be so good. I think of all these artists now, they're like, they're such creators as well with like, images and film and like they're they're making their own content and they're kind of mm-hmm. put it on their own sites sometimes or their instagram account mostly but it would be so good just for them to use that in such a different way there's definitely an opportunity there for spotify to sort of own that um i think itunes has dabbled in it but not quite pulled it off yeah they yeah exactly they, and i mean i don't know maybe if apple music starts catching up to spotify because I do know they are gaining market share. I know that, but oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not as fast as they hoped. I know that too. So I don't know. Maybe that maybe that can happen one day. I yeah. hope it happens one day. Yeah, let's make it a project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to go back to something you touched on early on when you were talking about it. Of You had this knack for being able to work well with difficult clients. How did you kind of develop that? Because that is, that is a skill set in its own of, you know, you know, it was a skill set. I, I guess I didn't even really realize I was developing. It was like it was it was it was mostly in music industry where I kind of take it as a challenge. You know, when someone says, "Oh, this this guy's going to be really hard to work with," like mm-hmm. I, that used to be music to my ears. Literally, I'd be like, "Oh, that's kind of interesting," and trying to really figure out like what what was the thing that made them tick. Um, and there was a common thread in all of it. And, and what that common thread that I find through working with a lot of artists was that they, um, they sort of crave perfection in, in the same way that they put their heart and soul and every single minute of their day into making their music. In that case, for, for artists, like they want you to do the same. Like this is like their, this is their work. Well, it's more than work to them. It's their creation. Sure. And like yeah, sure. they're yeah. kind of bringing you into the family and, and if you treat it like just a job, you know, it's just another one to do, um, they sniff that out pretty quickly. Um, so like once they sort of see that um, you care as much as they do, because actually what you're giving them is your work, your creation, mm-hmm. and, and you're kind of putting the two together. Once they sort of saw that sort of passion from you, like it, it got a lot easier and you you'd build this level of trust with them that you just end up working with these artists over and over and over again. 
Um, so that, that was something that I learned really early on and that, that stayed with me through publishing music industry and now into working in, in digital, working with clients, just like really letting them understand that this is not a job to me. Um, I love doing this and I will put everything I have yeah. into making their brand or their work look amazing. I mean, that's, that's, what I, that's what makes me happy. So I think it's like communicating that because I think a lot of designers can come off standoffish, you know, and it's, it's, sure. it's self-interested in, in a way. Um, <laughs> I'm guilty. I, I, yeah, I, I, I have a friend who had a, I, I literally was talking to them today about it. I'm trying to remember exactly what they said, but it was uh, arrogant introversion. <laughs> that's perfect <laughs> yeah. yeah I think I think you know a little bit of arrogant introversion plus uh, just an understanding of business you know I, I think a, a healthy balance between the two I mean you're not I mean the, 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 that classic moment at college when, when I was at, uh, doing like an illustration print degree after my graphic design degree at Royal College I was mm-hmm. basically told like you need to go be a designer and I was like well, what's the difference and they were like well an illustrator artist is solving their own problems. Designers are solving someone else's. You're good at solving someone else's. Go solve them. And that, yeah. was, that was probably the best advice I ever got at college. It was like just that direction to be like, you, you think about things in a way that, you know, is probably not to be an individual self-motivated artist. You actually do really well analyzing and solving other people's problems. And that's how I ended up going down the design track. Um, but I think you really have to sort of recognize that that's what you're doing. I mean, you're there to solve other people's business problems in a, in a way. Sure, sure. As uh, you know, as you kind of progress through your career, and you know, you you go from a point where, excuse me, where you're working with artists, but you may not have as much to do with seeing how the business side works of things, into progressing into a point where you're having to deal with creative and business on probably an equal level, if, if, if not the business side winning out more often than not, when you get in the totally. upper echelons, how do you start translating that for yourself? How do you start picking up on those things? I was, it was, it was really hard at first because it, I mean, I, I, if you think about it, I started design pre-digital and then got into digital Sure. And, you know, back when we started doing uh, digital work, I mean, it was, um, I guess everybody was like, well, we should have a website, right? And, and but nobody, <laughs> nobody really understood the value of what it could do for their business or their brand, at least back then, because it, it actually, to be honest, back then it couldn't do a lot. I mean, we were right, yeah. severely restricted. But you know, yeah. you skip forward 15 years to where we are today, where you can literally do anything you want, film, mm-hmm audio, like anything. I mean, the technology today compared to 10 years ago, compared to five years ago is incredible. And I think when you get to that point where not only can it change your business, I mean, you can build a new business through digital. I mean, that feels, that's very powerful for, for a designer to understand that and understand that what we're doing can literally make or break a brand. Um, from, a, from a sort of revenue perspective, from a leads perspective, even just how they communicate um, to, to a customer that they'll probably never meet. That was the other thing I really loved was, you know, our, our audience of who saw our work went from the tens of thousands to the millions, literally overnight, where sure. now people seeing your work are like, unless you're working with a really big artist back in the day, you know, you were talking about maybe 10,000, 20,000 people seeing your work. Now it's like, you know, when you work for, like we worked with BMW, we work with Apple, um, like millions, literally millions of people seeing what you create. That's, that's, uh, there's, that's, that's very satisfying, very gratifying to know that you're working for a brand that has that sort of reach across the world. Um, mm. So it's, but in, in the context of that, and you're trying to still hold your integrity or your, I can't remember what you put it, your sort of introvertness. Um, arrogant introvert. Yeah, you're, you're, you're trying to keep a little bit of that because, you know, you're, you're not here just to color in pixels for, for someone else. I mean, you're, you're, you're trying to bring a little bit of your personality to the table as well. I mean, I think those initial meetings, um, whether it be a pitch or a chemistry meeting, uh, where you're sort of meeting a client for the first time, you really get a sense in those meetings whether you're going to take to each other or not. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think you can tell in those early meetings whether it's going to be a 10-year relationship or it's going to be a one-off project. Um, sure. Because, you know, there's a simpatico there that, that happens. And I, I think we've... Luckily at Critical Mass, 
like our relationships go into the 10, 11 and 12 year long, not for, I've only been there six years, coming up with six years, <laughs> but we've had clients that have been with the company for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that the company's very good at, this, this sort of really try hard to build a relationship that goes beyond just sitting in the meeting room and doing the design presentation. Like really trying to understand their business, like what's, what's the pain points of that particular client who we're working for. So that's, I find that that's a new thing, but it's a challenge and it's a challenge that I've kind of embraced and I, I, I love doing that. It's, 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 um, it's proven to be, you know, the, the thing that made me into a CCO was, was dealing with the business side of it when I stopped being an art director or a creative director and I became a chief sure. creative officer. I think the big flip there was really trying to understand how design was going to impact and change the, the business as opposed to just creating it. Yeah. So for people who may not be as familiar with, because there's a lot of places that throw titles around and just things like that. But what, what is the difference between what a CCO does and what a creative director would do? Yeah. I mean, so I, I mean, I came up through the ranks. I mean, I, I joined uh, in the music industry back in the day as a designer and I worked my way all the way through to an art director and a creative director. And then now last 10 plus years been a chief creative officer. And to me, the, the big difference, I think even up to at a creative director level, you're, you're still just to an extent hands-on. Um, right. You're still super close to whatever clients you're working with. Um, you are very responsible for the quality output of what you're doing for that client. Um, the buck kind of stops with you as a creative director for, for the mm-hmm. quality of the work. At a, at a CCO level, I think you, you go a level above that and you start to think about the quality of work of the agency. And you mm-hmm. start to think about the quality of the work, quality of the talent that's delivering that work within the agency. So the team building aspect of it, I think you also spend a lot more time on how we work, how do we work smarter, um, how do I set teams up to do really good work so they're not wasting time doing production when they could be spending time thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you, you sort of go beyond just the creation of a single thing and you start to think about all of the clients that you have in the portfolio and, and even just our own brand, um, how we talk about ourselves and how we talk about ourselves in a meeting with a new client. Like what's different between us and the four competitors that we pitch against in every pitch? Um, and you, I think you spend a lot more time on new business um, because you become kind of a face of the, the creative face of the agency. Um, sure. So you, you have a lot more time in developing business and finding business than you do at a creative director level. So I think to me that that feels, I don't know if that's, I don't know if every CCO would tell you the same story, but that, that, that's what it feels like to me, um, the, the, the change between the two. Now, on saying that, I will still open up sketch or envision or photoshop and do stuff and then have people tell me i'm a really expensive art director um, so, but i try not to um because there's nothing worse i hated it when someone's standing over your shoulder like verbally pushing the pixels um sure you know i, I try not to do that um because I, I i was in that seat and it's 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 a pain in the ass when someone does it but at the same time you have to learn how to direct people and give critique um, without literally taking the mouse out of their hand and doing it. I mean, that, that was the big mental flip between the creative director and the CCO. Sure. Well, I imagine, you know, kind of the dealing with difficult clients when you were in the record business mm-hmm. kind of can directly translate into managing people. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm, not, I'm not saying the designers that you work with are difficult people. Oh, they are. <laughs> oh, good. Well, you they all listen so. to your podcast, so they'll hear me saying that. Um, no, but I, I, I hear you because I, I think you have to be a good reader of um, people to give right. really good feedback. Um, because, you know, people can get, people take, a lot of people take feedback personally depending on how you deliver it. Sure. And they take it like a personal attack. Oh, it's yeah. It's not a personal attack, right? So I, I think there's, yeah, you really have to sort of hone your style in how you deliver feedback in, in a way that people embrace the feedback as opposed to fight it. Um, and, and I learned that in the music industry. That was, that was, I got that the other way around in the music industry. I had artists yeah, just yeah. tell me what they thought without really thinking about how they delivered it, <laughs> sure. which was always interesting. Um, but yeah, you're right. Learn to develop a thick skin. 
Yeah, that, that sort of people skill part of it, I think, is really underrated. Like how you bring your teams along and, and give them feedback that they feel like they haven't done a bad job, that they've done a good job, mm-hmm. but it can get better. Um, I think that's the, that's the trick. If you, if once you get that, it's, it, the, the job gets a lot easier. Yeah, I, I know with like feedback for me, if, I, if I'm getting feedback, like the, the, the thing I hate to get the most is I don't like it. Yeah, and it yeah. just stops there that's because that doesn't feedback. help me. That doesn't. That well, no, it's not. But a lot of people seem to think that that is, and it's like, you know, instead of I don't like this because of this, and you know, I can do something with that. So you know, and you 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 know, when you're getting feedback, you can tell by somebody's body language as well as the way that they're delivering it to you, and it's like. You know, if you see somebody coming in and they're they've got a defensive posture and they're about to give you feedback, your you know your shields immediately go up and well, here's your feelings get hurt. Here's here's another here's another angle on that. So, like I you know I think the first twelve fourteen years I worked pretty much exclusively in the UK and Europe, and then I come to the US and now mm-hmm. I've worked almost exclusively the next fourteen eighteen years here. So you think you got to remember in the UK, the, the British never, I'm Irish, so I can say this, the British never say what they think. So, yeah. you know, it's like. I live in the South, South it's the same way. way. Oh, right. So, yeah, you know, I, there's a classic joke about, you know, a British couple going into a restaurant and they both order fish and they get broad steak and they're eating it and not saying anything. And the waiter comes along, how's your meal? And they go, yeah, it's wonderful. You know, it's uh, like, it, that would never happen in the US, right? I mean, right. because people would tell you what you've done wrong. Um, right. So, you know, I came into the U.S. and into New York, of all places, um, <laughs> with, with, with that sort of like kind of half coddled sort of feedback mechanism. And then sure. you come in and then my first review, like not only is like the person I'm talking to giving feedback, like everyone in the room is giving feedback and saying exactly what they think about it. So th- there was an adjustment for me when I first got here, just the, to the sort of oh, and that was internal. That was inside our own agency. I wasn't even clients. Um, just the, the adjustment that I had to make in that first six months, I would nearly run kicking and screaming out of New York back to the UK because I was like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I can handle this. Um, but, Breaking down in tears every night. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but after a while, I, I, I really come to appreciate it because like, you know where you stand, you know, it's, it's like, I, I, and whenever you're working on a budget where time and money is everything, why waste time? Like, softballing something you know like once you get past that need to sort of have something told you in a way where it doesn't hurt your feelings and you get into it's like no this is time and money let's like move along and make this better um i really appreciate that now and and now when i go back to london to our team in london (laughs) and i give feedback (laughs) a lot of the times they're like man wow that was harsh like no it's just it's real it's like you know this this is how we work yeah I didn't tell you you were bad. I told you I didn't like this. This part was bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that's, you know, cause I both have to give and receive feedback and that's always getting feedback from, cause I grew up in the Midwest. So getting feedback from someone who's born in the South, it's, they very much beat around the bush and they don't give you a straight answer and things like that. And then when I have to give feedback, I still have that, even though I've been in the South for close to 30 years now, I still have that Midwestern mentality where I'm polite, but I'm straightforward about it. Yes, (laughs) yes. But you got to remember, I I work for a Canadian company. Oh, yeah, even more polite. You know, so we go from (laughs) London to New York to Canada and yeah. even culturally in our offices, even though we're the same company, often working on the same projects, using the same tools, same process, but culturally, like moving through those time zones, like oh, yeah. it feels different, right? Just how people relate to each other and how you relate to the work. It's, uh, you really sort of sense it. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the Canadian in that uh, fish dinner, steak dinner situation Maybe would apologize to would apologize to the waiter for getting the steak. Oh yeah, like it was their <laughs> fault. Yeah, and should I pay more? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> but um, you know, so, so I want to get back into that of you know. I kind of want to jump back off on the difficult client situation thing um, because we've all dealt with them 
And I think a lot of times people misconstrue a difficult client for one who has a very strong viewpoint. Yeah. Well, but may not be able to express it properly. How do you, how do you, when you're working with clients, how do you get them to a point where they can express it properly in their language and you're able to translate it back to your team? Well, one of, one of the things that I'm finding really great with our strategy team right now, so I look at the strategy that sits before we do the work and then what comes after. I think the sort of the behavioral research that we're doing going into work, um, whether it be through just analyzing data, what's data telling us, what's behavioral research telling us about the customer. It's, it's allowing us to build a really strong case for the design that we put in front of the client. And the thing that we're, we're working really hard with our clients now, because in reality, most of our clients are either selling up to a board um, or they're, they're, sure. they're, they're sort of selling globally to, to their, their partners in their own company, like helping them build a case before we get too far down the line has proven to be really successful. And that's just giving them the right language and the right information and the right data points to say why we did what we did. And then after the work, like really trying to get into this habit of treating our work like software. So it's like constant releases. So also trying to get the clients off this idea of like the big moment, like the, the big thing that sort of we release once and then it's like, thanks very much. We'll come back in seven months and see how it's doing. It's like trying to sort of constantly release and analyze as we go along. Like most of the work we're doing is, is user experience work, it's site work that is getting sure. close to being product. So you can do iterative releases and feature releases and constantly be evolving this thing over time but not just doing that for the sake of doing it, but watching it and watching what's happening, what's successful, what's not, and then changing it. We have the ability to make our clients look really good. Um, mm -hmm. and, and sort of showing them that, look, look how this is impacting your lead generation. Look how this is impacting revenue generation. Most of the times what you find with, with the clients when they get frustrated, and I think you're absolutely right, it's not, um, they're not just being assholes. They're, they're, they're sort of, they're just struggling in, 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 in finding the language to sort of ask the right questions of, of what you've put in front of them. And, right. and I think what, what we've, when you realize that, what we've tried to do is like literally give them the language, give them the information, because in that moment, what they're trying to do from you is extract that information out of you to put in their head so that when they're talking to their boss, they sound smart and then they can understand it and explain it. And, sure. and it's how do, we, how do we help them do that? And that, that's where I feel like you have to go beyond just being a creative director with the thing that's sitting in front of you. You have to start thinking about how you sell that work. And selling that work is, is empowering other people to sell it. And in a lot of cases, it's our clients. Um, and it, that's been really powerful for us over the last five, six years. Like when we have those sorts of relationships with that client then implicitly trusts you because he knows you've got best intentions for the business. And you're also giving him the language and the information to sort of build a case for it. I find that to be the thing that that's, gets past that barrier of like that bad meeting where you can't get out of the design review with you know your head still intact. It's like, it's, it's sort of been able to have those sort of conversations where you sound smart about the business, not just like selling a color or a picture or a font, you're selling something else. Sure. When, when you're dealing with a particularly demanding client, say, say for instance, like BMW or somebody like that, how do you, how do you, how do you establish kind of the communication guidelines and, and go from there? Um, th so if I, if I use BMW as an example, I mean, I, I'm finding them a, a, a fantastic client. I mean, they, they're, they, they bring that um, engineering mentality to the projects, sure. so, which, which is kind of interesting because they'll, they'll look at, if you think about a car, like they launch it every year and every year mm -hmm. it gets better and better and better. Um, and that's how we are approaching our work. It's like launching something and then iterating and improving, same thing. So there's a common mindset there that, that the, the, even though they're marketers, they come from an engineering company uh, that engineers performance. I mean, that's how, they, that's how they think. So they're about engineering and performance, which are two key things for us as well. So whenever you put those two things together and you tell them up front that, you know, the first three, four design reviews that we have, it's not going to be perfect. So don't expect it to be perfect. Um, and sort of making them realize that that's the case. Like, still to this day, we, we, and we're working with them now for over two years, I know we will go into certain design reviews 
and they'll start like critiquing things where you're like, no, but we told you that's not done yet. You know, so it's like they, they want it to be finished immediately. And sure, even sure. though you've caveated it to death and you've pre-sold it to death, <laughs> they, they still do it because people can't help themselves. It's, 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 yeah. it's how we are, right? You will gravitate to the things that you don't see and ask why they're not there. Um, yeah. And I, I, I feel like only over time does that start to go away where they understand your working process and how you do things. And, and you know, that, that just takes time. And I think that you have to invest that time with a client to get there. It's, it's really hard on a one-off project to get there because you just don't have the bandwidth to, to do it. You're, you're moving so quickly and you're just working towards a deadline. It's, it's over. Sure. When, when you're building a relationship with those clients and building that trust, what are, what are some things that you do to kind of reassure them to, you know, that, that you understand their vision? Yeah. So we, we try to sort of, especially if the client and the team are in close proximity with BMW is a good example. They're out in New Jersey and we have our office down in Tribeca. There's, there's, we spend a lot of time with them out in New Jersey. They spend a lot of time in our studio as well. So they'll come in every week to our office in Tribeca and sit with the team all day. Um, and, and that's been kind of interesting because then, uh, they hear the problems being exposed in real time and they're helping you solve them as opposed to you going away and working for three weeks by yourself and then coming and telling them three weeks after the fact, oh, we had this problem and we're just telling you not. Um, that, right, that, so, that, so making it a collaborative, collaborative process. process. Yeah, they're, they're, they're invested in it. Like they're, they're, that, that investment that they have through that working process is way deeper than you know, a remote client that you see every three weeks. Um, sure. Just because you can solve things in real time um, without having to have a review every time you do something to get sign off, um, that's kind of interesting. And also, they see you trying stuff out. They see the cutting room floor, which is kind of interesting, because if you think about the other way of working when you're remote, like the cutting room floor stays back at the office, and you bring yeah. the best, or what you assume is the best, and you put it in front of the client. Like when the client's in your office and all the stuff's up on the wall and they'll see stuff that maybe you would have passed by and they're like actually that's kind of interesting because if you did this with it it could work so <laughs> they become part of that process and, and and that is um that's that negates almost having to have design reviews because like every single hour is a design review as opposed to every three weeks uh, sure, sure. So I love. Well, it goes back to that constant iteration process that you were talking about. It's it's just it's real time iteration, and you know when you're when you're able to collaborate with them, of course they're going to know their product better than you. Of course they're going to have better insight on it, and they may think of something that you didn't think of because they live and breathe that every single day. Whereas you know. BMW isn't critical masses only client. Yeah. So you can't while you while you may have a team that's devoted to it for that project um and you know they can't devote 100% of their time to it every day on your side. Well, it's interesting because I mean I've worked on I think 6 7 automotive brands right now so it's it's you you bring that to the table. Like mm -hmm. people at BMW a lot of them have worked at BMW all their life lives I mean, sure. sure. They, they live and breathe it. So you actually can bring a different automotive experience to it, which is kind of interesting. So you can talk about how their competitors do stuff or like I worked mm -hmm. on ID, which is like one of their biggest competitors for, for a while. So there, you get that angle to it. But just thinking about another client, um, Citibank, what, what was kind of interesting working with them, one of the things that we did really early on was we started to bring actual customers into the design room as well. So now we've created like a trilogy where it's us, the client, and a set of customers every mm -hmm. week. Uh, and this was around a specific project for the Apple Watch when it first came out. Um, oh, okay. And, and trying, to be, trying, trying to sort of design for a platform that we had never seen, because at this point we didn't even have a watch. Um, yeah, yeah. And trying to figure out what it was gonna be. Like, what is this thing on our wrist when we've already got this incredible phone in our pocket? Like, what role is it gonna perform in our life? Like, trying to figure that out. And of course, the client in this case had Lots of ideas about, oh, well, it could push your bank balance to the screen and, you know, all these things. So we were like, okay, well, that could be interesting. So we're debating it. And then a customer comes into that conversation and goes, the last thing I want on a watch is my bank balance. 
It's like, I, if, I would never do that. It's like, why would I want my bank balance on my wrist when everyone in the room can see how much money I have? And like the client just seeing that in real time and being like, oh yeah, I never really thought of it like that. It's like they, 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 they had that inability at that particular point to put themselves in the customer's shoes. They were thinking of feature sets based on their business as opposed sure, to sure. feature sets based on what a customer actually wanted. And like hearing a customer saying, the first thing I would do would be switch that off. So, it, and then that, 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 that sort of feedback starts to really- yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely see that. Yeah, it, it, it drove the feature set in the end. Like what, what would you use this watch for customer? Like what, what do you think it's gonna be? And if you think about where it is now, I mean, I think the Apple Watch is incredible at uh, measuring your health, tracking your health, <laughs> health data. <laughs> I use it as, it tells me the time and it tracks my health. I don't read texts yeah, on yeah. it, I don't read emails on it. Um, and you know, I, I think it's kind of interesting when you, when you think, you know, when it first came out and where it's ended up today and, and how customers have, I think where it's ended up today has largely got there because customers have kind of pushed it there, um, which sure, I sure. think is kind of interesting. And, and they've responded to that and actually I think turned it into a really good product now. Um, but when it first came out, just watching people think, well, what, what, what will I use this for? I can't read emails on it, literally. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, so you want to read like a half a sentence at a time. Yeah, you can read a subject line. That's about it. And then you're taking your phone out to read the email. So it was, it was interesting watching again that that trilogy. We've tried to recreate now in in a lot of our projects because we we saw that debate happen in real time, and then like put that client in that room, whether they're a good client or a hard client or a clients trying to find language. When they get that sort of feedback from the person that's going to use the product, they can't mm -hmm. debate it. It's, it's, it's real. I mean, it's like, this is what people are telling you. Um, that was fascinating. And we, we've tried to sort of replicate that and make that part of our process now. Gotcha. As, as, as the team at Critical Mass grows, how have you tackled, because when we were talking earlier, you mentioned you've got 12 offices around the world. How are you attracting talent? How are you keeping fresh ideas coming in and, and, and new team members engaged. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I feel, I, really, I think now more than ever, I feel the generational gap in a designer coming into the company and where I'm at, however many decades after <laughs> I came into a company. I can um, feel your pain. <laughs> it, it's, right, it's changed a lot. I feel like um, new talent today, I mean, the, 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 what they're working on really matters to them. Um, like the brand that they're working with and what that brand stands for. It's almost like the, the same way they treat the brands that they buy, like <laughs> the brands that they work on have to have equal um, integrity in a way. So, I, I mean, I've literally maybe more now than ever seen, you know, young talent refuse to work on a particular project because it, it conflicts them in some way, politically or whatever. I mean, there's, there's, sure, there's sure. different reasons. And they're not afraid to put their hand up and say that. Whereas in my day, I think you kind of closed your eyes and got on with it, you know, and just <laughs> did it. It was like, it was your job. And I think there's that side of it. I think the other thing I'm finding really interesting is that the, the, the team that they're working in has become kind of important to them, like who they're surrounded by in other disciplines, um, specifically mm -hmm. designer and their relationship to technology um, and developers, like that partnership, that sort of art and code partnership is, has become really important. So showing them, how that works. So you come in as a, a creative into a design team. It's not, you, that, you're not the only person responsible for that work anymore. Your design gets handed off to someone else who then essentially makes it live in code. Uh, and sure, sure. a lot of these designers coming in, come in with the ability to code. So they can, they can go head to toe with the development team and talk about that front end experience and how it gets translated. Uh, so that, that's been kind of interesting showing them that there's a really good technology partner in the team there so that that convinces them that they're in the right place. The other thing I'm finding is location is, is really interesting. I mean, we, we, like most agencies, have got offices in the big creative hubs, uh, you know, London, sure, sure. New York, wherever. Um, and, and that's great. I mean, there's great talent pools there, but it's also incredibly competitive and it's also incredibly expensive. Um, and it's, it's hard to retain talent in those pools because there's 50 agencies outside your door willing to pay that little bit more or offer that brand that they can go work on. So like the revolving door inside those big talent pools is, is hard. It's hard to keep people. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So one of the things that we're trying, which is proven to be really interesting and successful so far is 
Um, going into places where we're not, where we don't have offices and not forcing people to move. Um, letting them stay where they are and, and work for us remotely. And we're calling it liquid talent. Um, and they'll, you know, we might have people sitting in Detroit that will work with our Chicago team. I know someone, one of our creative directors right now, our design director, sitting in Boulder, Colorado, works with the Chicago team and the New York team. Um, and I think that that generation coming in has really embraced all of the tools that we have at our disposal now to communicate and share and work remotely and, and are very comfortable doing it. They don't feel that need to sort of sit shoulder to shoulder in the way that maybe my generation did. Um, so that's been interesting and that's really forced us also just because of that. So think about going from London to New York to Calgary through maybe a 10 hour time difference. How do those teams work together if they're all split across the offices? So just how we work has been kind of interesting as well. Trying to think about building like shared libraries and common tool platforms where we're all doing the same thing in the same way um, mm -hmm. has, has been worth investing in. Now that we've invested in all those things together, it's actually starting to work out really well. Um, now we're going to go on an effort to sort of really sort of amplify this thick of talent because I think there's a lot of talent in places where we don't have offices and we can't expect everyone to move to us. So it's like trying to bring sure, them sure. into the family and, and, and sort of get them part of the teams. Now we'll invest in putting them on a plane and flying them in for key client meetings and key, key kickoff meetings at the start or a big design review we'll bring them in for or a big workshop we'll bring them in for. But most of their time, they are remote and, and they're working in, in their environment and working with one of our teams. With, with, with implementing that, what are some of the growing pains other than you know, working across a lot of different time zones, which even when you have people in, in those offices, you're still going to have, but when you've got people who are working remotely, who are not in the office every day, what, what are some of the challenges that come along with that? Well, I think a lot of what we talked about before, I mean, there's obviously a real desire for us to sort of get in a room with our client, <laughs> with customers, design team, we're all there together. We're all sort of investing ourselves together. Obviously a remote person team can't always do that. So you really have to pick the moment of when to bring that person in because you can't fly them in every week because it kind of defeats the purpose of having liquid talent. Um, sure, sure. So you, you kind of have to be really strategic about um, making those moments or constructing those moments where everybody comes together and, and making them really valuable for a couple of days so that whenever you come apart, you're, you're aligned and you know exactly what you're doing. So that, knowing that, we didn't get that right at the start. We, we, we assumed that the kickoff meeting was like absolutely critical. When in reality, the kickoff meeting is like, hi, I'm Connor, I'm the CCO. Um, yeah. You know, the, the real meeting is like three weeks later, whenever you've actually done some work and you've got something to discuss with the client or customer, that's the meeting. And we didn't get that right at the start. So figuring that out was, was kind of interesting. I think the other thing was, I, 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 you know, we're an agency that's you know, close to a thousand people and like an office on the West Coast to an office on the East Coast, even though we're doing the same thing, we would be doing it different ways. We're calling it the same thing, but we're actually doing it different ways. Using a different, sure, sure. some people using Envision, some people using Principle, some people still in Photoshop, some people using Sketch. So it was kind of interesting watching how people, now the output would be just as good, but then how do you collaborate if you're all on different platforms and different programs? And so sort of going through the company and actually start just cleanse how we worked, like the toolkit, what do we use? Like what's the common toolkit we use and why do we use it? And when do we not use it when we need something else? So just getting all of that sort of aligned and on board was really interesting because the, the interesting thing with the newer tools like Sketcher and Vision, like a library of components created in New York can be accessed by our team sitting in Costa Rica, accessed <laughs> by our team sitting in, in Calgary. So there's no rework. There's no, um, oh, I'll make that similar, but then they miss something. So that sort of feedback mechanism was getting kind of messed up. So those things alone have made a massive difference. Common ways of working, shared libraries, and, and just um, making sure we pick our moments of when we bring the actual team together physically. Um, those three things, when we got them right, that's when it really started to hum. Gotcha. As critical mass moves forward and you start bringing in more remote talent and you start you know, really honing and refining and 
finding that groove um, even more so than you do today. Where do, where do you see things going? What what are kind of some of the goals as far as the team goes? We we're starting to build out like specialities that um, are, we're we're calling them studios. So it's almost like studios within the the studio, if you want to call it that. Sure, sure. Uh, so an example I'll give you: we 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 built a, a studio called Wander. That's essentially our started out as like our ability to do photography and film internally. So we didn't always have to go on triple bid to production companies. We, we took it in house right. and started to do it. And we brought those types of people into the company to do it. Just watching how that's evolved. Um, we just hired our first musician um, last week, full time on staff, critical mass employee. He will write music wow. for our pieces now. So we don't, we don't use stock music. We don't use stock audio. Um, sure, sure. for things like designing um, like a mnemonic library for interactions on a site so instead of going and just going to one of the sites and downloading an audio set which is stock which maybe five other brands are using is actually writing little audio components for navigation all the way up to actually composing ambient music or whatever you need um, so we're building an audio studio and we've hired a musician so just starting to think about all of the things that just make the experience richer, deeper, better um, than just the visual component or the interaction component. That's something that we're starting to really think about. What do we need to do that? Um, and in this case, it was, we need a musician. Um, you know, three years ago, it was, we need a director of photography. So we went and found one, like a guy who shoots short films and we, he now works on staff. Musician was the next one. I don't know what comes next. I'm kind of, vo we're really playing around with voice. Um, and the thing we're finding with voice interaction is it's, it's linguistics is the trick to making it really good. Um, so it's like that, that, that sort of like um, question tree that sits behind the voice interaction, like getting that right is, is a real skill. And the people that know that really well are like a hybrid content strategist, information architect, linguistics expert. Like those three <laughs> skill sets, I don't know if it exists. <laughs> if I find that guy or you find that guy, send him my way. <laughs> so you're going to be searching Stanford's semiotics department. So, but I feel like those people are going to have a role inside agencies in the future because it's, if I think about the role of content strategy and hybrid to information architecture, and we joke, you know, we've spent like 15 years perfecting on screen interaction and optimizing it, and voice is going to come along and it's eradicate all of it. And, yeah. and, and what, what, now what do we use the screen for? So we're getting back to record covers again, which is like just beautiful visuals that augment a story and all the interaction is going to happen by voice, literally somewhere at the back of the screen. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because it, it, like it, it completely changes the way someone interacts with something and it's, you know, how do you create functionality yet having f yet emphasize form and figure that out that's that that's an interesting challenge to me oh totally and even um like the like the voice that you choose is branding uh, it's like you know, oh, yeah. Like, oh yeah is it is it male female is it friendly approachable like what's the tone like that that the brand side of it and then the linguistic side of it like those two things together um that's that's going to be a fascinating space we've been building some prototypes we, we built a prototype for marriott for a in room, uh, voice controlled room, um, that was kind of interesting. So it's like we've been, you know, but I, I also feel like until some of the platforms like Alexa or Siri open up and allow us to go in there and play with it, um, it's hard, right? Because there's a brand sitting between you and the brand you're trying to get to. Um, sure, sure. So it's like there's only so much you can do with those platforms, but I feel like if they open sourced in the way that Apple allowed, allowed us to go in and build apps and play around in, in the app environment, if we could do that with Siri, which I don't know if that'll ever happen, but it would be really interesting. Yeah, that that would be interesting. And I mean, cause there's so many factors that play into that, you know, from, you know, the voice that comes out of the interaction as well as the voice that's going into the interaction. So you've got to have somebody who, you know, for you, even though, I mean, you're from Belfast, so you're, you don't have that strong stereotypical Irish accent. I, I have a city I, accent. I, I, neutralized. I, do. I, I, I get there pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. Hey, you, you put four pints of Guinness in me and I'll 
You'll find an Irish, Irish accent too. <laughs> no, actually, you do that. The Midwest accent comes back out in me, and it's yeah, you know, lots of yeah, sure, you betches. Totally, it's, it happens. <laughs> but it's there's a we we used it actually in a client presentation. Um, there's a British comedy show that does a sketch that's uh, two Glaswegians get into a oh, get into a voice controlled elevator, and oh, there's no buttons anywhere. You have to get in, and the door closes behind you. And then you have to tell the elevator what floor you want to go to. So they're saying it, and the elevator doesn't understand them. So they're stuck in the elevator, and they can't get out. So they start screaming at the elevator. It's, it just escalates. It gets worse, because the angrier they get, the more incomprehensible they get. Um, but that sort of like dialect yeah. thing and, and voices, I mean, we have, we have uh, Siri. I use it quite a lot now, but still certain words uh, that I say because of my accent, it trips it up. And uh-huh. you're saying them three and four times. Film is a good one. So people from Northern Ireland say film as opposed to film. film. Um, mm-hmm. So if I say something like that, or we pronounce C's as K's, so I work for a car company as opposed to a car company. Um, <laughs> cer- certain, certain things like that, it's like it doesn't understand. So it can be frustrating at the same time. Um, but the thing we're also finding with voice that's kind of interesting is that I think everybody assumed it was going to be for that super young, cool edge technology generation where they're just like, oh, I'll just talk to my phone. It'll be cool. Actually, the older generation have really embraced it as well because they don't have to touch screens. And if, yeah, I, yeah. if I set aside and dexterity or going and they don't want to deal with the screen, just the ability to talk to it and have it do something they love. Um, I, I think that's fantastic. It's so cool. Well, I'm going to go out and make an assumption here, but we're we're relatively close in age. I'm going to assume you're at the point where you need reading glasses. Oh yeah, like, like I do. They're right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I I completely understand it. It's my you know my arms are not long enough to read. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you, you almost need a selfie stick just to read the phone line. Um, yeah. 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 No, I I it's it's I just noticed it recently. Not not really through work, but just. You know, when you're when you're around that generation, just watching how they've embraced um, voice-activated technology in their homes for mm-hmm. things like radio or the weather or appointments or grocery lists, like they're mm-hmm. they're using it and loving it as well. It's just like they're so, oh, this is so helpful. It's like they're they're sort of so embraceable of it. Yeah, well, I mean, I I see it with like my own parents. My parents are in their early seventies, and they've got a, I think they've. I think they've got an echo at home, Yeah, but they, they use that to do stuff and interactions and stuff. Meanwhile, I don't have one at my house. I mean, partly cause I have 10 year old boys and I would just be inundated with, um, it searching for Minecraft games <laughs> a lot of time. Uh, um, yeah. and, and the fear of them accidentally purchasing like the Minecraft extended library and oh, yeah. me trying to figure out how I'm going to pay for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess we're not paying the mortgage this month because they just spent seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely see that, but I mean, I think there's also, with our generation, we're in that weird space between, you know, we didn't grow up with digital. It came in when it was still a very influential space, but we still have a bit of that concern about what's happening with data and things like that. Whereas you've got the generation below us that they just, it, it's been ingrained in them. So they're not thinking about it. It's just a tool People have always had their data, yeah. and then the generation above us—they're not thinking about it because they just don't—they don't understand they it. Care. Yeah. They don't understand it. They don't care how data is going to be used. It doesn't affect me, you know that sort of thing. So that's—I think that's why you see those two generations adopting it more than you see like Gen X adopting oh, it. Oh, totally. Yeah, it, it's that's that's interesting because I—I you're you're right. We are in that we we're probably the most security phobic of of all of that the generations yeah because oh, sure. we've lived on both sides of it whereas the other two generations above and below us just know one or the other oh yeah i just put in my claim with equifax i don't know about you yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um as, as we're kind of getting wrapping up here and getting close to our time i want to hit you with a few rapid fire questions yeah, right. since it is yeah. feasting on design um 
So what is kind of like your earliest food memory? Food memory? Yeah. Oh my God. I went to Catholic boarding school, so you can only imagine. <laughs> oh God, it must've been terrible. So yeah, I didn't, I don't think I had vegetables properly until I was in my mid twenties. Everything, uh, everything I, mean, I mean, boiled in water. Not to make fun of Irish oh, yeah. cuisine, Every, everything, everything, everything was boiled. <laughs> and 10 times worse. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, my earliest food memory was like being going off to boarding school and being absolutely starving hungry and coming down for dinner on like the first night or the second night we were there and just this food sitting in front of me where I was like, I will never eat cauliflower again. <laughs> and it was it spoiled, it spoiled cauliflower and broccoli for me because it was like just horrible, just you know, horrible. No, just yeah, not good. So that the earliest memory there was a bad one, and it it stuck with me for a long time. Like just the the taste, I was just I couldn't forget it. It was like a mental thing. <laughs> sure, I can understand that. My wife still won't eat cauliflower. Oh yeah, well I've just now we figured out if you roast everything, it's like uh, it tastes basically good. <laughs> so it's like oh yeah yeah. If I roast cauliflower, no, I'll eat it. So it's it's okay. There, there there's two ways to make things taste good: roasted or fried. Yeah, fry it and salt, <laughs> lots of salt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What, what what's kind of like your go-to comfort food? You've had just a crap day. You want to just you know pig out on something. I I love um, I love pies. So this might be more of a UK thing. I think the the New Zealand and the Australians do it. But like shepherd's pie or cottage mm-hmm. pie or like anything like that. That that's like true comfort food for me. I I can get done with a good uh, shepherd's pie. Shepherd's done well pie. is like amazing. So we'll make it at home like from the ground up and it's like incredible. But there used to be, uh, uh, when we lived in Brooklyn, there was two guys came over from Leeds in the UK and opened this uh, fish and chip shop that was about three blocks from our house. And it was like heaven because it was as good as you get in Leeds in the Midlands in the UK, which is one of the place, mm-hmm. best places to go for it. And um, they just brought that skill of doing it really well over here. And they used to do a really good shepherd's pie. So whenever I had really crap days at work and I got off the subway, <laughs> straight to the fish and chip shop and I bought shepherd's pie. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, what What is your death row meal? Oh, it wouldn't be shepherd's pie. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if I could make it happen, um, I'm a big cyclist. Cyclist, my sport has been all my life. And uh, a lot of times when I travel, it's because of cycling and, and uh some of the best meals I've had are after you've been riding for five hours and you come back and you're just like so hungry and sure, food. Sure. You, so your, your sense of like food being goods heightened anyway. Um, recently I went on a trip to Tuscany and I was riding in Tuscany and we were um, staying at this company, this company called Ingamba where they literally make everything like like as you're literally as you're eating it, you're eating in the kitchen. So they're making it as, as you're eating it. And this oh, is in Tuscany, nice. so it's like another level. Um, they made like pasta that I, even just the simplest like pasta, like carbonara, just simple carbonara done the way they do it was like, it's a food experience. So what I would want for my death row would be to get the chef at Ngamba to fly to wherever death row I'm on <laughs> and cook for me in my cell and we did it together because that's what we were doing with these guys there was something something about them making it right in front of you and then serving it to you and then they sit next to you and they eat it with you so it wasn't just the food it was the whole thing it was just the experience was, of it it was yeah. pretty amazing but also just I guess they're getting incredible ingredients in, in Tuscany just like every like it's what five ingredients that go into it like all five sure, are sure. just like so good, um, and they're making pasta, of course, as well. So it's like really good. Yeah, that 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 sounds wonderful. Because despite what uh, Olive Garden says, <laughs> it's, it's not, not just like being in it. No, it's not. <laughs> I can tell you, it's not. I've been eating it both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then lastly, since you are uh, Irish and you all have such a wonderful uh, pub and drinking culture there. What is what is your uh, go-to beverage of choice? Redbreast twelve-year whiskey. Nice. So the thing you don't know is our family business is bars and hotels. <laughs> really? I'm the only one that escaped. Um, so back in Belfast, we have it's a small sort of uh, townhouse hotel and four pubs. So I grew up in a bar, literally, and served in a bar. Yeah. For like 
yeah. all, all my teens and all the way through to like art college. Um, sure. So I, my go-to would be, I mean, I, I'm a Guinness drinker, but I, I, I've also got quite a few people inside Critical Mass onto Redbreast, which is the best Irish whiskey. Um, and a 12-year, there's a 10, a 12, and a 15. 12 years mm-hmm. is the one to invest in. It's really good. I will have to check oh, that yeah, out. I have, tried, I have tried the 10-year recently oh, yeah. at a awesome. conference. Very good. Yeah. yeah, recently at a conference that I went to, they had a uh, the opening night kind of mixer for the speakers and things like that. They had a whiskey tasting, and they had a bunch of uh, – they were, they were matching up whiskeys from around the world as well as bourbons from the United States. Ah, very cool. That's, that's my sort of night right try there. That one. I, would have, I would have loved so, that. So it was very nice. Yeah, yeah it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. So, Well, real quickly before I let you go, where can people find you online? Um, I've got myself down to one social platform. <laughs> oh, you're, so you're much better than me. Yeah, I mean, I, you can find me on Instagram. Pretty much anything personally is is, is happening there. Um, work-wise, criticalmass.com. Every, we keep it pretty up-to-date with all of our stuff. Um, so those are the two places, work and personal projects. Those are the two places to find me. Pretty simple. Awesome. Well, Connor, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me tonight. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Good fun. And... Go out and break some bread. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, well, we'll meet in the middle somewhere. Where, where would the middle be for us, from Alabama to New York? Oh, probably somewhere in North Carolina. Uh, that could be good. That could be interesting. Probably like Raleigh. That sounds about Durham. right. Yeah, yeah, Raleigh-Durham. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah wait, that yep. sounds good. All right, we'll plan it. <laughs> sounds like a plan. Thanks All again. Right, take man. care. You can find out more about Connor on Instagram at cbrady. And be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with him. I hope you like this episode of Feasting on Design. Let me know what you think. And if you like it, leave a review over on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit feastingondesign.com to catch up on the archives of the Creative South podcast. Get some cool swag like t-shirts and stickers that are on sale right now for 50% off with free shipping on orders over $25 when you use the code free shipping, all one word. Plus, you can keep up with the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Feast on Design. And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, and Instagram. <laughs>